Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast. The comedy politics podcast is actually all for U-turns. Except no, sorry, no, no it's not. Oh no, wait, sorry, change of plan. Yes, it is. Oh, except when it's a U-turn, then it's not. But it also is though. No, sorry, no, it's not. Yes, it, yes, it is. I'm Tina Duyeb and welcome back to the first show after the summer break. Or as it should have been renamed this year, more of the same shit, but now even the weather's letting you down. Things in the UK are being forced back to normal now, in the same way you could have a normal stay at the Overlook Hotel if you just kept telling yourself the walls weren't bleeding and those twin girls seemed perfectly normal. The Prime Minister, an old folk tale about a boy who kept turning into unmixed cement because he told fibs, Boris Johnson, has warned that people should go back to work or risk losing their job, because as we know, losing your life or loved ones is only second and third on the priority list for someone who's dead inside and doesn't understand the concept of family. It's quite rich advice from a Prime Minister who barely turned up to his job even before the pandemic hit, and who it's arguable has never done any of the work bit when he was there anyway. I mean, take the exam results fiasco this summer. During it, Johnson was too busy hiding in Scotland to reassure students that there won't be any jobs to apply for anyway, at least in the next 10 years, so as long as they know how to build a bunker and search for water, they'll be fine. No, instead of divulging useful truths like that, the Prime Minister was too busy pitching a tent on a farmer's land without asking, in the way only someone who pushed through Brexit but doesn't understand how borders work could. In fact, the only time Johnson thought it was necessary to return from holiday was to pipe up about the suggestion that the last night of the proms might no longer feature songs about Britain's colonial past. You know, such as Land of Hope and Glory, a title that now only makes sense if you sing it with the same level of irony used to name Robin Hood's massive friend Little John. While they glorify slavery and therefore should have been replaced with just the wah 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 of a sad trumpet some years ago, the main reason those songs weren't being sung was because the government's advice on Covid safe performance meant that singing in groups on stage was not permitted. But how is the Prime Minister meant to know what the official government guidelines are when that would require reading or listening to someone? So instead he reared his head out of his tent placed on someone else's land because for him colonisation is merely an acceptable holiday activity and demanded it was time to stop the cringing embarrassment about British history. 
Was this a moment of sympathetic understanding that we're all suffering so much cringing embarrassment about the British present that to incorporate the past as well is just too overwhelming and we might cringe ourselves inside out? Or was it that, again, unable to say anything actually of value, it's easier just for the Prime Minister to go for the only thing he does with all his policies? And what everyone does when they sing Land of Hope and Glory. Loudly shouting hollow jingoistic words while mumbling or forgetting all of the information carrying in between bits and hoping no one notices until it's far too late. So now everyone must go back to work, as if we don't, all the Pretamongers will close, and frankly, your Covid catching concerns pale in comparison to the worries that Foreign Secretary and unicellular organism Dominic Raab won't be able to conceive of anything else to have for lunch and will rapidly starve to death. Won't someone think of all the landlords of big office buildings who'll have no one to pay them extortionate rates just so they can catch coronavirus in a lift like a really uncomfortable dignitas? I mean, now Switzerland is on the quarantine list, you may as well go to work where all your final wishes for a peaceful departure will be thwarted by coughing your way out as Steve from Accounts makes the same unoriginal joke about what you're having for lunch as he has done every day for 15 years. What all of this shows is that despite saying they believe in a free market economy where services and goods are self-dictated by consumers, the government and big business heads would much prefer it if you actually gave them money for the same shit you've been doing for years because readjusting to progress the world would require them doing something more than sitting on their asses, raking in cash convincing people that they can't make sandwiches in their own kitchens. I mean, the Confederation of British Industry is currently warning that city centres will become ghost towns, which completely ignores that perhaps with over 50,000 people unnecessarily dead, maybe the booming industry of the 2020s will be exorcists, mediums, ghostbusters and those walking tours that take you into a dark room and shout boo at you. Though it'll have to be a well-ventilated dark room and they'll need to do the booing through a mask. Maybe the idea is that if everyone goes back to work, at least they won't be at home when their kids return from school, full of Covid, and that'll give them the chance to extend their life by just a few more hours. Schools returning this week and not sending your children back will dent their life chances, said Education Secretary and Will-o'-the-Wisp Gavin Williamson, a man who only weeks before had fronted an exam results algorithm that dented every student's life chances. It is remarkable that Williamson is still in his job after presiding over a system where students were given exam results based on exam results of previous years, something that he and Ofquell, the exam board, said was about fairness. You know, like how in a fair you'll never win at anything because all the games are rigged. Which must be why private schools benefited largely from the algorithm and comprehensives didn't. And that proves that it didn't really work, because if it was based on former pupils' performances, then Eton, where Boris Johnson went to, would just award everyone a certificate saying, you're an unbelievably useless piece of shit. Of course, there was a U-turn on the exam results situation, but Williamson still remains Education Secretary. Perhaps Boris Johnson couldn't fire someone that he saw as a kindred spirit, his modus operandi also to be causing lots of unnecessary distress to children. Instead, two senior education officials have lost their jobs and Johnson assured school children that the whole thing was due to a mutant algorithm, as though it wasn't him and his government that went round pouring radioactive goo onto it before Gavin Williamson, like a big rat, trained it to do damage. It is our moral duty to send kids back to school, insisted the Prime Minister, and if you're going to take morality lessons from him, then you can probably just claim it isn't your doing if your kids don't return, and it was all down to a mutant algorithm that automatically churned out a half-assed note in your handwriting and then announced you're firing the cat as a result. 
The government made another U-turn on secondary pupils having to wear face coverings in school corridors and communal areas, something that for many self-conscious 13-year-olds sounds like it'll just make school easier, to be honest. But this prompted criticism from within the Conservatives' own party, though, with the chair of the 1922 committee, Charles Walker, someone who looks like Eddie Redmayne was slowly fed through a pasta maker, saying that all these U-turns have created a climate of uncertainty. Yes, that's definitely what did it, Charles, as up until then, Brexit, the coronavirus, climate change and the like were all making us feel very snug and secure indeed. I've a feeling Walker would be happily sitting in a burning building till it crumbled around him and then accuse someone outside smoking a cigarette to calm their nerves of making him feel uncomfortably warm. He said that it's becoming increasingly difficult to defend government policy, which again feels like after 10 years of austerity, he's turning up to the party once its hosts have died of old age. The thing is, U-turns are exactly what I'd expect from a government who are made entirely of spin. It is unfair though, isn't it, particularly to children? I mean, who'd want to be a young person in today's world where you're told that gatherings of 30 plus people are illegal as they pose a Covid risk, but also do you go back to school to your classes of 30 plus? That if their parents care for them, then they'll send them back to a potential Covid hub, but they should also use their common sense. But if their common sense says not to send them to school, it's immoral. And then all these kids will have to work really hard to study for exams that may not happen and they'll just be handed whatever result that dickhead in the year above got when he spent year 11 drawing penises in permanent marker on the sports hall walls. And in the future, these kids will have to try and get jobs that won't be there and make sure they can afford to buy a property by not wasting money on avocados, but if they don't spend money on Pret Avocado wraps, they'll lose those jobs in the first place. Or while learning to swim for increasingly lengthy amounts of time, while Waterworld becomes not just a film flop, but a societal flop too. What they have to understand is that really, to get anywhere in life, these kids should look to the country's leadership for guidance and learn not to bother to try at all in life and if anything goes wrong, blame someone else entirely. Oh, and whenever you can, to maintain public support, yell about how history must not be erased so it's very important the last night of the proms features 17 British Bulldogs farting Hitler has only got one ball into a microphone. That way, true leadership lies. And it does, well, whenever it bothers to turn up to work in the first place. In other news, Public Health England has been scrapped and will be replaced by the National Institute of Health Protection, an executive agency created to deal with infectious diseases and will no doubt use an algorithm that will downgrade any illness or injury you have to something more cost-effective to treat and based on the last patient they had in. Unless, of course, if you pay for private. Actually, though, it'll be headed up by Tim Farron in disguise, Dido Harding, who is most well known for getting a big Covid job because of who she knew and then failed to do the same for anyone else with a completely shit track and trace system. She was also a jockey and in charge of the Cheltenham races, so nothing instills more confidence than knowing the NIHP will likely decide it's most affordable to shoot anyone who gets really ill. Health Secretary and one long forehead Matt Hancock has said that England could face nationwide restrictions and further local lockdowns as a second wave is avoidable but not easy, especially when your boss wants to charge headfirst into it and shake its hand till it's fast-tracked back into society. Hancock himself did say that there was very little evidence that coronavirus is passed on in the workplace, despite him and the Prime Minister and many of their colleagues all catching it while at work. Only last week, hundreds of poultry workers at a factory in Norfolk were told to self-isolate due to an outbreak leading to 75 cases. But to be fair, Hancock did say there's very little evidence and that could just mean that Dido Harding couldn't remember who she gave the evidence to and no longer has their number. 
Former Australian Prime Minister and troll-faced meme Tony Abbott has been tipped to become a UK trade ambassador, despite his history of climate denial, misogyny, racism and once biting into an onion as though it was an apple. Which is exactly the sort of thing an alien pretending to be a human would do, but to Boris Johnson, it's probably just a good sign that he's completely ignorant about complex layers or correct procedures and therefore will fit right in. Abbott is a proper shitbag of a human being, but maybe that's why he'd be a great ambassador for us in the UK. I mean, there's every chance that after just one meeting, foreign officials would give us such a brilliant trade deal just so they wouldn't have to meet up with him ever again. And lastly, the Liberal Democrats have a new leader in the shape of Rory Kinnear having a difficult shit, Ed Davey, as the party aims for someone so nothingy that hopefully any blank ballot papers at the next election will be counted as a vote for him. Davey has vowed not to turn politics into a culture war, probably because when he was part of the coalition government, they worked so very hard to destroy all culture. Yes, it's 2020 and here in Britain, the leaders of all three main parties are now men that would be impossible to spot ever again if they wandered into a millet. Actually, that's not true, as Boris Johnson would be the one escorted out for pitching his own tent in the middle of the shop without asking. Hello you, how's things? Oh, I like what you've done with your leg or pet or outdoor scaled volcano simulation. Um, I hope you all had summers because, I mean, I didn't. Jesus, the weather made more U-turns than the Department of Education. Um, otherwise though, I had a lovely time seeing some friends in Leith uh, where I got sunburned in Scotland. I know, if that doesn't alert you to the dangers of climate change, nothing will. Um, I also finally did a couple of comedy gigs, which was really exciting. First one since March. Um, they were both outdoors. One was to kids in a courtyard um, I mean, they were meant to be there. It wasn't, I didn't just turn to a courtyard and shout at children. Uh, although sometimes as a parent, that is all I want to do. But no, it was a lot of fun. It was a really good gig, that. And um, the other one was to adults uh, in a field, um, which I mean, when you just tell people to turn up to a field somewhere in Nottinghamshire, it does sound like a trap, but it wasn't. And I think the adults, uh, I think the people in the audience really enjoyed it. But they were so sort of spread out in the field in front of the stage, I couldn't really tell. Um, they all sat by little red flags that were distanced very carefully from each other. And that was very clever, but it also looked like any moment they'd be swarmed by mini-golfers. Um, the whole thing just felt a bit like being the opening act at a festival when no one's really turned up yet. But I mean, saying that, people tweeted some very nice messages afterwards, and every now and then, when the wind blew in the right direction, you could hear laughter. Um, and it was lovely shouting the jokes I could remember and being heckled by a very beautiful sunset. I've no idea if there's going to be any more. Um... Hopefully some indoor ones are meant to be coming back now. And I just pray I'll get to do another one before a second wave means comedy can only happen while balanced on a 400-foot pole using a series of tin can walkie-talkies to whisper jokes to eight people spread half a mile away from each other. Fingers crossed that is not the case. Are you all back to normal now? Are you back to work? Are you kids going back to school this week? Uh, have you all got an unmentioned acceptance that you're never going to see your elderly relatives ever again? Well, uh, whatever you're attempting to do, uh, as we all make some sort of weird agreement to just forget how germs work, this podcast is now back from its mini break. And thankfully, absolutely nothing happened at all over August. So, you know, it was absolutely fine that I had four weeks off. I'm sure you didn't miss this show or need it at all. Thank you for coming back, though, and thank you to everyone who donated to the show, even while I wasn't doing it. God, that is lovely of you. Wasn't even there, wasn't even working for it. You just were being nice. Um, thank you tons to Christine, somebody, somebody, Mark, Kim, Claire, James, Helen, Joe, Baldy and Conal for Kofi donations. Um, to Scott, John, Doug and Roz for joining the Patreon. And Doug and Adorable Gabe for being the first people ever to, to donate to the ACAS supporter page. Uh, I don't even know how you do it. I think it's like a button or something, but you found it. You did it, so well done. And uh, Gabe's message 
message was indeed adorable. I mean, he signed his name Adorable Gabe and then left an adorable message. So thank you for that, Gabe. That was very lovely of you. Um, if you do enjoy this podcast for some baffling reason, uh, then mostly please tell other people, give it a review on podcast apps and all that. And um, only if you can afford to, please throw me your hard-earned money um, or easy-earned money if you're earning it very easily. Um, I don't know, who earns money easily? Landlords, I suppose. There was a kid at my secondary school who sold um, the private school nearby big bags of mint saying it was weed. Uh, he did that for about a year till he got in a lot of trouble for it. But that was easy earned money. So um, if you're doing that, uh, send it over um, to the Kofi ko-fi.com forward slash parpolebro uh, you can join the patreon.com forward slash parpolebro which you can now do in pounds and everything um, or there is the Acast supporter page on the Acast app or site or somewhere I don't know can't be that hard to find um, I refuse to play the tiny violin uh, mainly because I can't play a normal sized one and I'm concerned the sound would just be really awful on a smaller one especially if you're wearing headphones it'd be even smaller and more whiny. Um, but let's just say that any donations right now are still even more appreciated than usual on account of the government deciding comedy isn't all that worth saving, uh, probably just because they keep supplying enough of it with their own policies. Well, that's not really comedy if it makes you cry, though, is it? Don't tell me that means I need to reclassify this show. How dare you? How dare you? Um, I'm making some changes this season uh, of the podcast. Uh, I don't know if this show has seasons. Does it have seasons? Or am I just always a bit salty? Um, but yeah, no, I'm going to make a few changes. Um, firstly, uh, one you may have already noticed, I'm going to try and make each episode shorter than it used to be. It always used to be an hour, or I aimed for an hour, and it was often an hour ten. I'm going to try and make it less than that. Um, this is because I'm just desperately trying to find other work, and what little bits I'm getting are also writing work, and then that cuts into the writing of this thing. And uh, yeah, so not enough, I haven't got enough time to spend on it. I'm very sorry about that, but I'm sure none of you are that sad that you'll be gaining more lifetime and having less of my mouth noise telling you everything is broken each week. Um, but it just means things like the intro will not contain every bit of news from the previous week, but just some big chunks of news that I can do jokes for. Um, also, I was originally planning to do something very special or different for episode 200, which is next week. Yes, I've done 200 of these bloody things. I don't know, what's 200 times 20? Oh, or 30. No, because that's how much material there is. That's how much has gone out. What have I done with my life? I could have been using that time to do something really useful, like make a sculpture out of cereal. I don't know, shout at a crow. Something, actually, based on those suggestions, I probably it's probably best that I did this show. Anyway, 200. Next week's 200. I was going to do something really special, um, but then I realised that there's sort of too much politics shit happening at the moment, and it sort of felt like getting someone to interview me or setting up something silly instead of an informative interview felt like I'd be neglecting something else. Um, also, I didn't manage to arrange any of the things I thought I might do, and I thought if I sounded all highfalutin about my reasons, um, that would be better than going, sorry, I'm rubbish, but I was enjoying watching TV for a few weeks, so uh, pretend it is because I have values. Um, one thing I thought we could do, though, and... Let's only do this if enough of you send it in. But you know the email address for this show, partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Um, if you want to use that, send me a little voicemail message. Uh, you can record it on your phone or anything you want about anything you've enjoyed over the past 200 episodes, anything you've hated, anything you want to tell me, any questions you want to ask that I can answer. Um, if you want to send them in uh, before Monday of next week, record them and send them in to partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. I will play them on the show. And if it's a question, I'll answer it. If it's something rude i will uh, i'll still play it because 
I, I know I know what you like with these things. Probably won't get many. I'll play all the ones I get, regardless of content. Oh, I might be landing myself in shit here. But yeah, if you fancy sending me on uh, something for that, please, please do. Um, and the other thing you might like to know is that I have a new website. Yes, me, like uh, Tiernan, as it not like the podcast, because partly political broadcast.co.uk is still looking pretty swish, but tiernandoyeb.co.uk now also all looks fancy and new, just in time for me to have absolutely no gigs to list on there. Uh, but do check it out. Sign up to my mailing list that I won't send anything out on uh, for ages and just have a little look around at all the irreverent text I've put on it why don't you go and have a look right for this show back for the autumn I am speaking to assistant head teacher and former department of education advisor Caroline Spaulding about schools coming back and exam results hell and all that shit that you teachers and parents and students are going through Um, plus there are a few FAAs for the usual FAQs about refugees um, after all the news that happened in the summer Um, you know refugees those people fleeing over here hoping to have a better life how bloody dare they how dare they have optimism and bring that optimism here? If they truly respected British values, they'd come over here with the hope of a mediocre life and then complain about how everything worked, but blame it on other people. That's true British values right there. School is the best time of your life. So say lots of adults whose lives have never since hit that high of climbing wooden apparatus while in a pair of borrowed shorts. But for pupils and teachers in England, starting term time while Covid is still making more unwanted appearances than Jack Whitehall on any given TV station, it's all a lot more concern-ridden than the usual September worries of where your next class timetable is and if you'll be the only one of your friends whose voice hasn't broken. And obviously, whatever it is that students get worried about too. Arf. In Israel, reopening schools back in May led to a massive surge in the coronavirus. Aberdeenshire have already had to close a school just days after reopening in August due to positive cases in pupils, and 41 schools in Berlin have reported cases of the virus two weeks after the start of term. In England and Wales, though, the message has been that schools have to return because, as the Prime Minister says, it is our moral duty. Which also must mean that following his footsteps, it's got to be your moral duty to ignore that your kids exist and to tell your friends it's safe to drive them around really fast when you're feeling very ill and can't see. It will all be okay, though, as children are more likely to die of a road accident than Covid, says the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, as though all parents only have a choice between the two. And very much ignores the welfare of teachers, staff or any other grown-ups the children might come into contact with in their lives. Something most Conservatives won't have thought about, having been neglected by their parents and sent away at a young age. And let's face it, if I had a kid who acted like Boris, I'd do exactly the same. But alongside the insistence that schools have to go back, the actual guidance on how to do it has been unsurprisingly vague. With a U-turn on the need for pupils to wear masks in communal areas, a lifesaver for all kids with braces, and guidance on what to do if an outbreak occurs only being released at 11pm last Friday night. It's like giving students their only bit of exam prep five minutes before they go and sit in a hall. So just how are school staff going to cope? How safe do they feel? And does the government's guidance mean that parents should have been flinging their children into busy roads this whole time? This week I spoke to Caroline Spaulding and I was extremely grateful she had time to speak to me as she's currently an assistant head teacher in the midst of prepping her school for its reopening while running a summer school at the same time and seconds before we spoke the fire alarm went off too which probably almost perfectly summarised the state of being most parents, students and teachers are in this week. Caroline is a former advisor to the Department of Education so she has a pretty good idea of how things should be going and as you'll hear she managed to do an incredible job of somehow both being very diplomatic and very critical at the same time in exactly the way a top teacher might be. Caroline told me all about how her school has been preparing, if pupils did suffer lost time during lockdown and how the exam results fiasco may affect next year's exam students too. 
I should point out that this was recorded last week uh, before there was the exam story today all about how our students next year may not have any um, and also before all the guidance was released last minute on a Friday before a weekend before schools open because thanks government that's amazing timing. I hope you enjoy this brilliantly clear and informative chat with Caroline uh, and make sure you're listening because look I'll know I'll know if you're not and stop chewing stop it spit it out here's Caroline. Hi, Caroline. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Um, I know you're very busy uh, with term time starting again in just a few days. Um, I wanted to ask, I mean, it's been a hectic, normally summer for schools is when you have time off, but it seems to be in a hectic past few weeks for anyone involved uh, in education. Um, How confident are you and other teachers feeling about school returning in a few days? Well, it's quite good to answer that question. I think sat in school, actually um, leading a summer school at the moment. So I'm feeling probably more confident than perhaps some teachers who've been sat at home um, since March and actually haven't had that experience of coming back into the building. I think really it's very much about reducing and managing risk. It's not about eliminating it and, you know, starting from that awareness and also really considering as well teachers, not just physical safety, but also their mental health and well-being. Um, I think the school with which, which I've worked in has done a brilliant job of making sure that teachers have been consulted really at every stage of plans for return to school. You know, um, the NEU, so the National Education Union, has um, actually suggested that there's an additional rep specifically around um, risk assessments, which our school has taken up. And I think that's been a really crucial link to staff so they feel like their voices are being heard. Um, our own school board, staff body is really diverse. And I've been delighted that we've got a very specific um, risk assessment for our black, Asian, minority, ethnic colleagues, um, because there are obviously additional risks um, for them. And those extremely clinically vulnerable members of staff have all had like individual meetings or have been invited to individual meetings with head teacher. Um, so I think that's helped. I definitely think that's helped me to feel more confident. And then really those practical steps, I think, are fairly common in across schools. So, you know, that things like making sure there's really visible reminders to do hand washing and the really carefully structured zones to minimise movement of students, staggered lunch times, break times, managing the start and the end of the day. I think just they all help, don't they? Um, And, you know, as a member of the school leadership team, I'm going to be making really sure that um, I am visible, really visible presence throughout school. And hopefully that will also help to reassure. Yeah, that sounds like a, a lot of work that's had to go into making things safe. Do you do you feel like there's been sort of enough guidance and enough help in in? I mean, your, your school sounds like it's done a fantastic job, but uh, you know, I'm guessing is, is does it feel like the schools are sort of on their own in in sorting this out, or do you feel like you've had a lot of guidance and support? Because uh, sort of from an outsider point of view, as for someone that's not involved in education, it does feel like a lot of the guidance has come very last minute. I mean, I'm going to be diplomatic here. And I think, you know, (laughs) please do. This is an evolving crisis. And, you know, the government have had to respond to information at that crucial time, hasn't it? You know, we we haven't known what this this beast was, this coronavirus. So, you know, I do appreciate that's been very hard. However, you know, of course, there's a however there. I do think the clarity of the communication has ultimately been lacking. Um, my own areas of responsibility are what we call key stage four, so year 10 and 11. So all of that GCSE information, I've been trying to kind of decode. And I do think it's wrong when actually I wake up and the first thing I see is Facebook or Twitter. And that's how I'm getting messages actually about what's absolutely vital to um those teenagers and their next steps of um their educational journey 
I also do think that timeliness has, has been lacking where it's been really avoidable. So, for example, um, in my own school, over half the pupils don't have um, consistent access to IT. Um, it's an area of high deprivation. So that's, you know, 300 pupils in the secondary phase. And, you know, way back in sort of, I think it was April, we had that brilliant announcement about, oh, we're going to provide laptops. Fantastic. Absolutely the right thing to do. And, you know, why is it that actually I first got actually my hands on them in the summer holidays, you know, four months after actually the pupils needed them. And we still don't have anywhere near enough access to um, enough for the children. So if we go into something like local lockdown again, we're going to have people who just can't do that basic thing of access, accessing online learning. To be honest, the greatest source of guidance and support has been my union. So I'm a member of ASCOL, the Association of um, School and College Leaders. And Jeff Barton, who like me as an English teacher by trade, I cannot speak highly enough of the support that he has given to school leaders. Um, just really reasonable and just so understanding. And just, yeah, I think that's got many of us, quite honestly, through what's been an incredibly difficult time. Um, I, I want to I want to go back to lockdown in just a second, but I just want to ask because we're speaking just uh, a day or so after the mask U turn was announced. Is that I'm guessing that's quite a, a relief. Um, I I wondered if there's you know again uh, as someone outside of education for me it's just great kids can bring masks. Is there are there any other organisational aspects to this that I don't understand? And I mean, part of me wonders does it just mean they'll get away with chewing gum a lot easier because you won't be able to see? <laughs> I mean. Yeah, I, having the flexibility, because initially the guidance was, you know, not at all. Um, and again, there's that need to respond to the World Health Organization, the best possible evidence. So I guess there's a sense of relief that the government is doing that. But the, again, there's just a frustration between it seems that it's yet again been delegated to head teachers to make those final decisions. Because, um, again, the headlines came out, we can wear masks. And actually, when you look at the fine detail, that's not entirely true. It's only going to be mandated in um, those areas of local lockdown and this is again just that tension between giving school leaders autonomy and actually just passing the book you know head teachers are not trained um, in these really complex public health matters and um, they just like us are trying to do the best that they can for their school community um, so it's incredibly difficult and again you know I cannot speak highly enough of my own head teacher who I think is really gone the right route of consultation communication and and ultimately giving people their right to make their own choice about what we feel comfortable with so by all means wear masks um in high high volume areas like corridors breaks lunchtime same for pupils but equally it won't be mandated um, and it's about that individual sense of kind of responsibility and is there also, and, and I should say this is a, a very pro-mask wearer, but, you know, is there also an issue if it's another expense for kids who might not have the money to go and buy masks? You know, masks aren't cheap, unfortunately. Um, and it, I guess that's another concern, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's something that we'll need to respond to. So another area of my own responsibility is the pupil premium. So that's the amount of money um, that pupils will get if they're considered to be disadvantaged. And, um, you know, longer term, we will need to look at how we deploy those funds and whether there's a need to support pupils in, in, in purchasing them. But, you know, with the announcement just days ago, as I say, many of us are sort of really trying to think about what that means for our own communities. Of course, of course. Um, and, and I wanted to go back, as I said, to, to lockdown time is that, you know, we keep hearing that kids, are, they, they suffered all this lost time during the pandemic. And I have friends who are teachers who worked really hard to ensure there was homeschooling, whether it was on Zoom or trying to get things out to pupils. Um, is that sort of, you know, 
I think, well, the government, but just general, the kind of narrative, is it ignoring all the work that teachers did put in during that time? Because I'm guessing you didn't just have three months off, did you? No, I mean, <laughs> people know this. And I have faith in the public, quite honestly, to recognise that teachers and schools have worked incredibly hard. I mean, again, just going back to my own school, every single child received a weekly phone call. Um, because our, their health and safety is absolutely our number one priority, but also maintaining those relationships. And if we couldn't get through to them, then there was a home visit. So we're talking about hundreds of home visits taking place over those months. You know, it certainly wasn't kicking back. And that's before you even get to um, the setting of work and um, really innovative use of technology. But as I mentioned, for us, also providing paper based resources. So we were putting together fortnightly booklets for pupils, sticking them in the post, or myself and the Another assistant had, if needed, also delivered them. So it was a huge, you know, mammoth effort from absolutely everybody, um, premises staff, to really make that happen. But there obviously has been an inevitable impact on learning. Um, you know, it's unfair to pass the book to parents around that. And I do think it's it's very easy to ignore the, the pressure on parents around continued work. You know, incredibly difficult, I'm sure, to manage actually continuing to whether it's work at home. Um, the lack of technology, as I've mentioned, you know, ill health for our school community as well, language barriers of parents to actually be able to support their child. And it's also unfair to pass the book to that to pupils, you know. Um, I've got a particular area of interest in motivation, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that many of your listeners will appreciate how difficult it is to maintain motivation when you're actually sat at home. Now, dare I say, I've become very attached to Netflix over the last few months. Teenagers <laughs> are no different. Pupils are no different. And, you know, that's it's not their fault, quite honestly, if they found it really hard to, you know, do those hours of learning. Um, but, and we've also just got not to be too hysterical about it. So, OK, yes, there has been an impact on learning. Uh, we know all the complex reasons around it. You know, this was a public health crisis and safety was rightly the first priority um, from my own point of view gains will be made and learning when we return you know they absolutely will and it will be very, very much from my point of view kind of trying to keep both teachers and pupils calm really give them the confidence that we can close those gaps and as I said there are certain things quite honestly which are more important and I just want to see our pupils happy healthy on our return and then we can start to actually look to plug in those gaps yeah I mean I'd have thought you know it sort of it would reflect on pupils if if they didn't feel like teachers or, or you know anyone involved in education had didn't have their health and their family's health uh you know as a priority you know I sort of part of me just feels like one of the most important things to teach kids that we care about other people and uh that's going to come first I couldn't agree more. I, you know, fundamentally teaching is about people. Um, and I think that within our own kind of school, actually, we've got that right. Um, you know, there are people wrote a thank you letter and said that she she only moved from India a couple of years ago and how she felt like this was a family that she joined. And oh. just those words written. I know you couldn't write it, could you? But it's beautiful. Yeah. Think, yeah we we are doing something right and as I said everything else then stems from that I will say that girl went on to get straight grade nines this summer so she also Amazing. which is exceptional isn't it but you know those two things are intrinsically linked and if you get the foundations right then actually as I said the, the teaching learning the motivation will follow <laughs> 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really really want it all to work out while you're away. monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds, videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we'll be back with Caroline in a minute, but first There were a couple of weeks over the summer where it seemed the beaches weren't overcrowded, no one was having a protest about anything, and Labour had continued to not remotely criticize the government in any way. And so that meant it was time for the government to blame refugees and asylum seekers for absolutely everything, because as you know, it's definitely all those people escaping persecution and death with no possessions to their name who are the global oppressors here. Maybe the animosity is because in 2020 anyone who expresses any hope or wants to actually stay alive is clearly not right in the head. I mean, have they even seen the news? Why would you want to travel to the UK when you could just repeatedly shout racist abuse at yourself in the mirror instead? The Home Office didn't have a very good summer at all. What with deportation flights being cancelled after they were deemed illegal, having to ask France for help with border control, which just seems embarrassing post-Brexit, and having to remove a video from Twitter because it looked like a racist version of the Dad's Army intro and called lawyers activists for doing the work they're meant to do. Which makes me wonder if Home Secretary and the sound of a dentist drill made human, Pretty Patel, just thinks it means someone who's doing something. Yeah, they're an activist because they're active. So, I guess with their main achievements looking like they don't speak English properly, they've committed illegal activity and they need help from Europe, the home office had to think of something quickly before they expelled themselves from the country. And it seems that something was to placate the actions of dropped frogspawn Nigel Farage, a man who spent the lockdown standing on the beach and saying it was an invasion every time children arrived on a boat. Though let's face it, he doesn't like a rubber mask Scooby-Doo villain at the best of times, so he's probably just terrified of being thwarted by some meddling kids. It was a really horrible few weeks of very bleak news about young people not surviving the channel crossing or images of news reporters hanging over the edge of a boat to get a soundbite from asylum seekers in a sinking dinghy. And as with all unnecessary fabricated hype, it's disappeared again, now in time for the government to blame everything on teachers, parents and those refusing to go back to work instead. And so now I'm just waiting to see on the news a reporter hanging off a window cleaning platform poking a microphone through a vent shaft asking office staff what it's like getting rona because their colleague turned up the aircon too high again. 
The issues of how the UK treats refugees and asylum seekers and its immigration measures have been covered on this podcast many a time. Uh, The last was with uh, the brilliant Daniel Trilling in November last year, which is very, very worth a listen back to. But as that was nearly a year ago, yes, really, I know, time, where's it gone? Um, I thought I'd just do a very quick FAQ, FAAs for you on some of the things that people always seem to shout online, for they do shout all of the time. But that is illegal! On August the 23rd, Boris Johnson made some face noises about if people come to the UK illegally, they're an illegal migrant and the law will treat them as such. Or, as is quite often in the Home Office's case, they'll treat you as such if you're also a British citizen and they think you've got a funny-sounding name or pretty Patel would cross the road to avoid you. The facts are, though, that the UN Refugee Convention says that refugees can't get in trouble for going to a country to claim asylum, if they're coming directly from a territory where their life or freedom was threatened, as long as they head straight to the authorities and show good cause for them travelling there. What a lot of people like to get all miffed about, though, is how here in Blighty, it's quite hard for someone from various war-torn nations to get here directly, and so they probably should have stayed in France, Italy or wherever they hit land first. But in 1999, a Supreme Court judge ruled that some element of choice should be open to refugees who may properly claim asylum, and that short-term stopovers en route shouldn't stop them getting elsewhere. I mean, it would be pretty brutal if refugees travelling to the UK from, say, Syria could only get here by boat through the Mediterranean, then the Atlantic, in one sleepless fortnight-long trip. But I also wouldn't put it past Pretty Patel to try and enforce that, and then celebrities to try and do it for fun for a televised charity event where all the money ends up going to arms dealers. Why do they have to come here, though? Well, according to Amnesty, most people fleeing for their lives or freedom don't really know much about the asylum system they're heading to and tend to prioritise based on language or family and community that may already be there. I mean, it is funny how the government keep banging on about how great a country Britain is and how it's strong enough to go it alone and we mustn't be ashamed of our history and all that, and then when people want to come here, they seem upset and surprised. Maybe we should just have a big poster of Michael Gove's bicycle wreck of a face on the White Cliffs of Dover and the words, actually, it's a shithole, and maybe everyone would try for somewhere nicer instead. The UK's asylum system is actually rubbish compared to most other countries, with the weekly allowance being just £37.75 per person. Not only is it considerably higher in most other European countries, but also asylum seekers are permitted to work if their claims haven't been settled within nine months or less. In the UK, it's 12 months. We also have much harsher detention centres with no time limit on how long people can be detained, though places like Yarlsrud have recently been repurposed as a place to check the health and status of migrants crossing the Channel. But I mean, the UK's big welcoming committee is to say, oh God, we're so sorry you and your family were faced with a life or death situation. Please do come and live in abject poverty or a never-ending prison. Again, if the Home Office were just more open with international advertising saying, we really are heartless bastards, then refugees might decide they'd be better off with a country where the position of Home Secretary isn't only awarded to candidates who've been through some sort of Red Room training, but for sympathy. But they get more money than pensioners. No, no, they don't. Uh, Illegal immigrants aren't entitled to any benefits. Refugees can only claim benefits once their application has been approved, and that can take absolutely ages because our system is shit. The maximum type of benefits they can get for a household with children is £23,000 per year, and they can also qualify for housing. But I mean, that's a pretty low amount to split between two or more people. Whereas a basic state pension is about £6,500 per year, but national insurance contributions should boost that, plus they get winter fuel payments, pension credits and newspapers that actually like them. I mean, the key thing is, though, that it's not asylum seekers' faults that pensions are shitter than they should be. No one has raced over here in a dinghy from Syria, dodging bombs just to harangue the Department of Work and Pensions until they gave in and lowered things. To be fair, though, if they did, that sort of commitment to a cause would be a lot higher than any politician I've seen, so fair play if they got paid attention to. 
But none of them are children. They're all just really small adults, like really small ones. This is one of those weird excuses that the Daily Mail only ever use when it's to do with refugees or the young daughter of a celebrity that they've posted creepy pictures of. Personally, I think people should be saved and sheltered regardless of their age, though conservative voting baby boomers do often really test that opinion. The fact is, though, there are currently between 25 to 26 million refugees in the world and over half of them are kids. The funny thing is, while idiots online like to pretend it only matters if they're children, the Home Office doesn't even want to save them very much. You probably know about the House of Commons rejecting the Dubs Amendment twice, both times deciding that offering the safe passage to Britain for unaccompanied refugee children wasn't really worth it for them. Which is weird, because what could be more attractive to the Conservative government than kids they could send back to school with zero risk of infecting their grandparents with Covid? Now, though, the Home Office are also trying to push through rushed age assessment procedures of unaccompanied minors who are suspected to be over 18, even though a court ruling last year said it should only take place for anyone whose physical appearance and demeanour very strongly suggests they're over 25. If you've fled a country and are under 18, chances are slim you'll be carrying any official accreditation, and these checks should be done very carefully, otherwise kids could end up unfairly detained and deported. Human rights campaigners are currently challenging the Home Office on this, so hopefully Pretty Patel will have to climb down once again from just pushing through something she clearly wants to do for her own kicks, along with, you know, tasering kittens and poking homeless people in the eye. So, there's a few answers for you that people who are anti-refugee won't actually listen to or care about anyway. The UK only takes in 1% of the world's refugees, we're properly shit about it, and asylum seeker applications are much lower than they were two decades ago, with just 35,099 at the end of March this year, compared to 84,000 in 2002. So it's really not an invasion of any sorts, and let's be honest, if you are going to be invaded, then it's probably best it's by families who are seeking a better life, rather than, I don't know, the British who'll want to turn up, make everywhere serve chips, and then they'll leave shit on the beach. Of course, once we Brexit, the Dublin regulation won't apply anymore, meaning the UK can't send refugees who arrive from northern France back to northern France. So, unless an arrangement is agreed, then if you voted for Brexit, you voted for the UK to take in more refugees. <laughs> and a bit more. <laughs> and depressingly, with climate change increasing, we may see more climate refugees, which is a term that currently has no agreed-upon definition, but refers to people whose homes have become unlivable in or unsustainable due to flooding, excessive heat waves, and depletion of fish and all that sort of horrible shit. So all I'm saying is next time you hear from one of those, but why do they have to come here, boars? Why not kindly explain if they really want fewer refugees in the UK, they should campaign for an eco-friendly lifestyle, maybe become vegan and really fight against a no deal and then shelter yourself as their heads rapidly explode. I'm mainly just looking forward to post-Brexit, post-Covid emigration from England, where thousands of middle-aged men from Kent are insisting to French Border Patrol that they're only 16 and they've just led a very plentiful life before they're quickly turfed back onto a lorry. And now, back to Caroline. That's fantastic. That's that's a lovely story. Um, yeah, and I, uh, in fact, we're going to get to exams in a minute. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm dreading talking about it. Um, how is I mean how how is morale amongst uh, teachers and also just just school staff right now because I, I just uh, you know as I said I I felt like there's been a lot of narrative about oh children have had nothing for months even though there has but also there was a there was a weird story for a while where it's teachers come on be heroes and return and everyone I knew wanted to return safely and you know it, it part of me feels like uh, and again I say narrative because I feel like this isn't just on politicians but you know sort of in, just in the general kind of media and chat and social media in, in, in general was that this idea that teachers didn't want to return but actually it's about being safe and sometimes I worry that teachers are feeling like maybe their safety is being neglected and how, how do you feel that that 
morale is amongst I don't know your staff and and your colleagues is are you feeling all right I think really frustratingly teachers are used to the crap in the media about us and there's no other words to use um, quite honestly it's been a real frustration of mine that I don't see the sheer joy of my job reflected when I open a newspaper, when I go on the news, unfortunately and frustratingly, when some of our government talk about my career, you know, I'm, I'm 14 years in and the laughter and the fun that I have in my job, you know, as I said, you wouldn't see in some of these newspaper headlines. Um, however, you know, teachers are, as you said, desperate to be back in school. I know amongst the colleagues that I've spoken to this week who are running both our year seven and our year 11 summer school, they can't wait. It's a dose of normality, but it's also just the joy of working with children. Um, you know, we, we miss them, quite honestly. And having spoken to the pupils this week, they dare I say it, they wouldn't admit in front of their mates maybe, but they miss us. <laughs> you know, miss that kind of routine and that challenge. Um, parents have been wonderful, I have to say. I think they are hugely appreciative of the work we've done. Um, We've had so many letters and notes, you know, on the paper-based packs I mentioned. Um, There was one that will always stick out to me and it just said, I'm so happy you always ask about my child. And obviously that was referring to those kind of weekly phone calls. Um, And that's what matters to us. You know, as I said, we used to chuck in the newspapers in the bin. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Save them for the arts, arts and crafts. That's what you're gonna do. <laughs> Perfect for paper mache. Um, and how is uh, how how is sort of morale amongst you know? Uh, I don't know if you're, you're maybe you're not getting an indication of this yet, but you know, is is morale amongst sort of parents okay? Because you know, we be, we've seen that there's big fines if they don't want to bring their kids into school. But obviously, some people may still not feel very safe, and that that feels like it's ignoring people's personal concerns. The, the fines is a really interesting one. And what I would say around attendance is, you know, they've always been there and they're at the end of a very long process around attendance. You know, they're one tool that schools have had. And really, if you want to improve attendance, it's about working with families, not doing it to them. Um, we have particular challenges around attendance um, because of the nature of our intake. So a third of our pupils are only gypsy. So there's really high mobility and not necessarily... Um, the cultural understandings around the importance of attendance to achievement but and you know that won't change that won't change um when we come back and it will still be working with those communities um you know where there is some really legitimate fear and and concerns about keeping their children safe and i think it's just starting from the point of view of we share those concerns and we don't have all the answers but we can talk to them about what we're doing to minimize that risk and the importance of, of getting their children back in um but as I said, I think because of the nature of our school culture and our relationships, I'm confident that we'll be able to do that together. That's great. That's really good. Um, and yeah, as I said, I apologise, but I've got to ask you about exams. Um, obviously, we've been through, we've heard about one people who did great, which is lovely. But, you know, I mean, that must have been a very uh, just stressful, stressful experience for you and, and for pupils. And I wondered how the whole exam result fiasco and then the U-turn, how's that affected things for, well, how's that affected those peoples, but also how's it affected things for future school years? Because now that's all we keep hearing, it's going to have an impact on how next year's exams go. Yes, well, where to work in with this one? So, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, as, as I mentioned, this is the bread and butter of my role, sort of working with exams. And 
I, I, we really had a sense of optimism, I think, when, when schools closed on March the 20th and we suddenly realised that actually exams were not going to take place. Um, what we initially thought would happen of centre assessed grades, so, you know, teachers' predictions, but moderated by their colleagues within their schools, and then a sensible national moderation process where, you know, any anomalies will be picked out, you know, those schools will be looked at in greater detail. I really was optimistic that that could take place. Um, and clearly something has gone fairly spectacularly wrong uh, between the DfE and Ofqual. And I think it's so important that there is a really calm reflection and evaluation and really open analysis about, you know, what, what happened, quite honestly. I'm not necessarily sure that's even a time for now, but certainly in the coming months, because quite honestly, with the nature of this pandemic, we do not know if we're going to find ourselves in this situation again. Um, I will just mention that our year 11s have got a motto this year, which I think is so wonderful. And we're going to keep repeating to them. This wasn't, didn't come from me. This came from our, our head of year 11. He says, I can't change the direction of the wind, but I can adjust my sails to always reach my destination. And I just think that perfectly sums up all That's of the lovely. Around exams that, you know, there's going to be winds that blow. You know, as I've said, we honestly can't say that those exact exam window will take place as normal um, next year but it's about us just responding as best we can to make sure that those pupils get to where they need to. That's ultimately um, what our job is to make sure pupils reach their next steps and exam results really are a set of keys aren't they um, to open those doors that we want our pupils to, to be able to open. Um, so yes it's been incredibly difficult. How do I think it's affected things for the future? Well, I think it's certainly underlined the need for high quality teacher assessment. Um, I do think it's going to be an easier job for me actually convincing pupils that mock exams matter. So there's an <laughs> um, What I would really like if one thing came out of all of this is, is a much broader reevaluation of what is an incredibly high stakes accountability model for schools. So you, you will know that, that schools are put into league tables every summer published in the local newspaper and you really don't have to scratch the surface very far to know they're an absolute nonsense um there is much evidence around um the impact of disadvantage you know which schools can have a huge you know a significant impact on but they're one piece of a much more complex jigsaw that something like a league tables quite honestly does just does not communicate to anybody and some of the really negative practices in schools, which are sometimes called lethal mutations, um, like, for example, you know, overinflating grades, actually the result of a huge amount of pressure that teachers and school leaders are under. Um, you know, ultimately an Ofsted judgment can cause can lose a head teacher their job. And I do think that's incredibly wrong. And it's not about school improvement. And actually what we all want is just better schools for our pupils. So I think hefty dose of reflection on that and what's what's been creating that accountability model I think is really important. Do you think this whole sort of period will allow I mean as you mentioned some needed changes there but we, you know we've been through such an exceptional period the whole country the whole world has um you know do you think this is kind of going to make people really reevaluate education and reevaluate what needs to happen in in the future with schools and with exams and with how maybe uh, just communication with pupils should happen. I think we've got to be a little bit careful of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And, you know, I've seen some people suggest we scrap exams completely, which kind of forgets that actually one of the reasons we're in this mess is because we did scrap exams completely. 
you know so I, I think always it's important to kind of take a step back and review but there's also recognizing that we've got some excellent practice in schools um you know this is not a system that's broken inherently broken um, and as I said, it's just really looking at how we create that sustained improvement, not the headline, you know, winning things and ripping it up and start again. And it's a frustration, personal frustration that education, unfortunately, is a political football. Um, it's perhaps something that everybody, because we've all experienced it, um, we often feel like we've got a, a, a point of view on Well, we have got a point of view on. But obviously, those of us working in education and um dare I say, have, might have greater expertise. Um, there was that brilliant line, wasn't there? Um, a politician said, you know, we're tired of experts. Was that Michael Gove? Yeah, it was Michael Gove, yeah, a few oh, years ago. Oh, that yeah. wonderful man of such a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... But, you know, maybe, maybe now is the time to actually listen to the experts, you know, and people who know about school improvement, who've done it. You know, as I've said, you know, I mentioned Jeff Barton before, an experienced secondary school head teacher who now has got this voice as the general secretary of ASCL. Um, you know, it's now the time to actually listen to people like that and letting them, them have a say rather than really thinking about soundbites and headlines. Oh, I dream I dream of us entering an age where people who understand the jobs get to uh, be in charge of what happens. And that would that would be beautiful, wouldn't it? An age of expertise, if only. Um, Caroline, thank you so much for having time to talk to me. I know you're on an incredibly busy schedule. Um, when do you start back? Is it in? Is it on the third? Is that right? Officially start back on the 7th, um, but I'm about to take a group of 27 year 11 pupils over for their lunch. So I am I am back. Oh, goodness. Booking, so. <laughs> Of course, yes, and you said the summer school, of course. Um, so if just very quickly, one last thing, which is just that I ask all the guests, um, just with with an aim of furthering, in you know, good information, really. Um, I just, you've mentioned Jeff Barton at school. I wonder if there's anyone else that you'd recommend listeners follow or read up on or websites that you use where you go to for, for good education uh, info and news. Absolutely. I'm going to give you five people to follow on Twitter who have given me the best quality up-to-date information throughout the last few months. So Laura McKinney, who is the co-creator of Teacher Tap, um, which is a um, teacher app, quizzing app, and a Guardian columnist, is fantastic. Sam Friedman, who has got more, had multiple roles, including working for the DfE. Um, John Dickens from Schools Week, Gronya Hallahan, who is a reporter for TES, and Miss Decox, who is an RE teacher, but who has some fantastic analysis of situations. They are my absolute go-tos, um, who I cannot recommend highly enough. Thank you tons to Caroline for having the time to chat to me, uh, despite her being in the midst of both summer school lessons and getting her school ready for the normal term starting again. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Mrs. Spalding, and she's also a team member of the SLT Chat Discussions uh, for all teachers interested in UK school leadership, which you can follow at SLT Chat on Twitter too. And Caroline is also co-organising the uh, Team English National Conference for all English teachers, which you can find at teamenglishnc.com if you too are an English teacher. Uh, it's a new season of Parpol Bro so there's plenty of interviewee gaps left to fill and as always your input on which peoples to fill them with is appreciated uh, let me know what issues you need to hear chat about from those who actually know stuff and you can do that by dropping me a line at Parpol Bro on Twitter the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or you could just publicly announce your idea at 11pm the night before I release an episode, knowing full well I'll already have recorded it by then, and I'll consider you to be one of the least helpful humans in existence this millennium. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? <laughs> 
And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Thank you once again for tuning in. And because you've made it to the end of the show, you must, of course, receive the appropriate reward. No, you must. No, you don't have a choice. Stop turning away. This is for you. Stop it. Have it. Here it is. Here is the Partly Political Broadcast Hot Politics Gossip Fact. And this week, I thought you might be vaguely bemused to know just what the most important political U-turn ever made was and by whom that did do it. Uh, No, it wasn't Creepy Pillow and former Prime Minister Ted Heath who U-turned on the entire promised 1970 Tory manifesto of cutting public spending by having to suddenly put tonnes of money into the NHS education and welfare in order to reflate the economy. Silly alleged, but let's face it, he almost certainly was big pedo Tedward. If only he'd been able to travel forward in time and see how his predecessors said they'd put money into those things while absolutely not bothering to and letting everything collapse, he could have learnt so much. Nor was it the 41st US president and inspiration for Gary Oldman's Dracula, probably, George H.W. Bush, when in 1988 he said, read my lips, no new taxes, and then raised taxes two years later. Though to be fair, he had such thin, non-existent lips of the kind you'd usually find on a creature that could only suction things for food, it is hard to say if he'd actually mouthed something else entirely. No, instead, the most important political U-turn in history was when Lib Dem leader and always train advert for men's hair dye products, Nick Clegg, insisted his party were the student party and opposed any increase in student fees before then voting for an increase in student fees as part of the coalition government. Why was this the biggest one? Uh, well, the auto-tune remix of his apology was groundbreaking in terms of political internet slams, a tradition that has long since continued, but also it led to the Lib Dems being reduced to a party whose size is comparable only to social events held by shit potato Toby Young, something that has had an impact in all elections since. And of course, it also helped scientific biologists discover the world's largest invertebrate. So there you go, this week's Hot Pole Goss Fact, and I hope you were excited for its return, or at the very least just took your headphones out till it was over. If you enjoyed that or it made you hate humanity so much that you're now calmed by our rapid self-destruction instead of panicked, then please do recommend this podcast to others that might like it. Give us a tasty five-star review on the podcast apps. And if you can, fling me some wonga at the Patreon code for your ACAST supporter sites if you can work out how to do it. Yeah, whatever thanks or something to ACAST, my brother-in-law sceptic Cat Day and Katie Coxell. And this will be back next week when Gavin Williamson is so insistent that schools are safe, he goes undercover as a pupil in a secondary comprehensive and teachers are so concerned by his haunted child looks and complete inability to listen to anything that he's referred to social services and is eventually fostered by a nice family with a dog and has his happiest life. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Alternative Prom Hits, for when you can't get jiggy with your jingoism as the band plays on. Why not try some of these bangers to truly yell something about modern-day Britain, but obviously only the chorus bits, yeah? Featuring the talking heads, we're on the road to nowhere, Pink Floyd's comfortably numb, Blur's This Is A Low, Beck's Loser, and nine hours of just the noise old televisions used to make before they turned off and never turned on again. Alternative Prom Hits, for the real sound of Britain, but mainly England. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.